Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, So glad that you're joining us here this morning and want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online up in Port Perry High School and all around the world. Glad you're with us. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you and want to say happy Thanksgiving again. Every time I do this, some Americans are like, what in the world's going on? Don't worry. You just got the wrong date. It's good. It's fine. Uh, We get to eat turkey earlier than you. Welcome to week two in our series called The Sent Ones. And what we're wrestling through, whether you're a brand new Christian, a long-term Christian, a seeker who's wondering, or a skeptic who's not sure if they should believe, is this. How do we live as followers of Jesus and find Jesus in our great city? In the GTA, six million people, like I said last week, the most multicultural city on earth. 300 heart languages spoken every day, sexually diverse in, diverse in every single direction. Every religion on earth is here, Muslim and Hindu and Baha'i, Sikh, witch, Buddhist, Jews, the list goes on and on. Spirituality mixes with agnosticism and scientific atheism. Our city is profound, it is creative, it is artistic, it is modern and postmodern at the same time. Our city is the engine of the economy of our country, banking and baking, fashion, trade, it is fast-paced, it is intense, it is vibrant, it is global, it is beautiful. And how do we act and follow Jesus in a city like this? How do we, since our theme this year is how do we pioneer and pilgrim? in a city that we love, with all of its good and all of its bad, with all of its unbelievable blessings and its actually dangerous temptations? How do we be in Toronto but not fully of Toronto? How do we be a blessing to the city that we love and God has placed us in and yet still stand for truth in a grace-filled way? And like I said last week, if there's one book that shows us how to live as followers of Jesus in a grand urban environment, it is the book of 1 Corinthians. There are so many similarities between that ancient city and our city today. The city was known as a secondary powerful trading post, and so people from all over the Roman Empire used to settle there and would live there. It's like Toronto compared to New York, not as powerful, not as known, but actually still quite a bit up there. Corinth was a city of culture and business and trade and pragmatism, and it was actually known for three things, and one of it was actually the pursuit of success. The city like ours was deeply multicultural. It was a religious gathering place for the whole world since the whole world had moved there. And it was also not only famous for its pursuit of success, it was also actually famous for its call for sexual diversity and promoting sexuality in all forms. If you read the historians that think about Corinth, they will tell you, like, just like our culture here, self-promotion and self-help and self-discovery was the gas in the car, was the lifeblood of Corinth. But the third thing that Corinth was known for was wisdom. They idolized knowledge. They loved learning. But the question you need to ask this morning is, why did they like it? And the answer is found in the DNA of the city itself. See, they wanted to know so they could achieve power. It was all about self-gain. See, this city was different than other ancient cities. It was not full of those who were born into privilege and power. That is the aristocracy that you'd find, for example, in Rome. 
This city of Corinth was full of up-and-comers, new money, freed slaves, now starting a new life, entrepreneurs, new cultures. The goal was to get power and status and money and position, but it never came to someone by inheritance. It came by your own hard work and also even your evil action. So the city was about wisdom and knowledge and intellect and education, and really, here's the phrase, it was about being self-made. You became someone in that city through your own thinking, through your thoughtfulness, through your hard work, through being physically strong, being beautiful if you had it, being sexually experienced, wisdom, lots of education, lots of followers, amazing communication skills. See, you moved from a nobody in that culture to a somebody by your own personal achievement. So the question is this, what does God do? Well, God does the very opposite of everything that city values. He does something that actually would be viewed as ridiculous. It's the opposite of sexy. It's the opposite of proud. It's the opposite of brilliant. It's the opposite of self-reliant. It's the opposite of me first. It's actually the absolute opposite of self-made. He has Jesus die on a cross to bring salvation. See, this is what is so countercultural. This is what is so shocking, and Paul wants to remind this church gathering in this self-made city called Corinth that they have actually been saved from the mentality of their city, and actually what their city loves and promotes is not where real love and real power and real wisdom and real rest actually comes from. Here's what he's wrestling with. How do you stand? How do you stand out in such a great, amazing city? How do you live and love your city but truly be countercultural at the same time? And Paul reminds this ancient church they have to go back to the center, back to the foundation, back to the beginning, back to the cross. We're very familiar with crosses in our culture. Christianity is found now basically all over the world. This is a cross from Zaire. What do you think about that when you look at it? Or here's one from Mexico. Or here's one actually from Vietnam, made out of recycled paper, if you can believe it. Or here's one right here. We'll call it a classic. (laughs) It comes from Israel, made out of olive wood. See, when we look at this symbol this morning, none of us hesitate. Most of us, when we look at this symbol, have a positive association it's inspiring, it's heartwarming, it's, it's hope-giving. If you're a Christian, that is why we actually have crosses on our graves, because it reminds us the resurrection is, too, is true. But 2,000 years ago, to anyone, Jew or non-Jew, anyone within the Roman Empire or even beyond, this symbol that we wear around our necks and that we have above our, cross, above our churches, was t- it was terror-inspiring. It was actually trauma-inducing because so many people had actually seen public crucifixions and couldn't get them out of their heads. It was the worst, most scary, most humiliating way to die. It was capital punishment only used for the worst criminals and insurrectionists. Celebrating the cross and singing songs about the cross is like doing this. I thank God for the firing squad that he did 2,000 years ago. It's saying there's such good news in the noose. It's like saying salvation is found in the electric chair and we're all wearing little chairs around our necks. Saying I love the cross is saying I love what God did through that beheading 2,000 years ago. And yet, 2,000 years ago, Christians are walking around in Corinth and in Jerusalem and around the known world and they're saying that the hope of the world and the great hope of humanity is found in the most gory, most humiliating, most bloody, most trauma-inducing experience ever invented by the darkest of human minds. 
Here's how Paul continues the conversation with us. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now you just think about that. The message of the cross People are actually hearing about the cross. They've seen multiple crucifixions. Can you imagine the reaction? Okay, here's the question maybe we need to ask this morning. Well, what is the message of the cross? Well, here's how Paul put it in Romans 3.25. God presented the Messiah, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Jesus. I want you to hear that again on Thanksgiving. Let it sink in. God gave Jesus over. God, before the beginning of time, gave within himself, himself for our sakes. Salvation that is free cost heaven everything. So the Father gives up Jesus, gave him over to deal with our sins. So Good Friday, the terrible events that took place, the, the execution of Jesus on a cross was the very plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. And as I've said probably 20 times from this pulpit, is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? No, because Jesus is God, God within himself, so loved the world that he sent himself to deal with our problems. What is the message of the cross? Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where? On the cross. Here's how Jesus' closest friend articulated it in 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So back to the foundation, back to the countercultural revolution, back to the foundation of everything we are. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it's the, power of the God, it's the power of God. Okay, catch this. In the middle of this grand, self-made, multicultural, multi-faith, self-promoting, self-reliant city, the message of Christianity is based on a cross. And the response by the average person is obvious. This is foolishness. This is scandal. This is stupid, idiotic. This is intellectually not viable. This is religiously wrong. This is backward, actually. This is downright disgusting and outright offensive. You can see it, right? See, the Christian message offends everyone in every direction, secular and sacred. Religious people start saying, well, God isn't like that. He would never make someone die in my place. Or no, no, don't you understand as a religious or spiritual person, I need to do all these religious acts. Then God will meet me or I'll meet him or find him or he will love me. And if you're saying that someone had to do something in my place, then everything I've spent doing my whole life is actually now has no value. Others say from a non-spiritual standpoint, well, it's just not logical. It's not scientifically understandable. It's not rational. It's not wise. And God comes along and says, actually, you're all wrong. Oh, wow. God's real work has nothing to do with beauty. God has not, God's work has nothing to do with how many followers you have on Instagram. God's work has nothing to do with being self-made or popular or being well-educated. Or it has, God's work has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with being good enough or spiritual enough or religious enough or tough enough. It has nothing to do with your RSPs. It has nothing to do actually with power. It has nothing to do with inheritance. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity or your gender. Actually, God's work never starts down here. It always starts upstairs. 
See, actually, the message of the cross is the opposite of the core values of Corinth and the brilliance of Corinth, and actually, it's the opposite of the core values of our own city. And if that is not jarring enough, listen to how Paul describes the human family. Just let the scriptures speak. To those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Oh, so humanity isn't actually divided on political lines or racial lines or economic lines or gender lines. It's actually divided on what you do with Jesus and the cross. So if you embrace Jesus' work, it says you're being saved and you, you know God's power. And if you reject Jesus and the cross, you are perishing. There is no in between. There's no fence. And don't forget that Paul is actually saying this in a city just like ours. Powerful, multicultural, multi-faith, every background. And then Paul, not done at all, quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 29, 14, for it is written in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. Well, I'm going to frustrate. Oh, I'm God, everyone. I just thought I'd share that little nugget with you. And I'm going to frustrate, reject, ignore, set aside, and break human wisdom and religious thinking all in one fell swoop. In the middle of this great self-made city that thinks it's smart enough and good enough and, and beautiful enough and educated enough, I'm going to do the very opposite, and I'm going to demonstrate that real wisdom, heaven's wisdom, is found in ugliness. Heaven's wisdom is found in weakness. Heaven's wisdom is found in the least of things, not the greatest of things. And to the many others of you listening, he's writing this morning, or back then, he says, the many of you that believe that you can meet or touch or connect or appease the divine, whatever he is, I'm going to show, God says, that there's nothing in their hand either. He says, where's the wise person? It's like, it's like God does a mic drop. Like, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God says, bring it. Bring your best right now. A teacher of the law is a Jewish phrase, meaning those who are theologians. You who are, and remember Paul's a Jew writing this, you who are the best Jewish scribes. The best thinkers, best rabbis, best theologians, you that have God's work and you know God's name and God's promises way more than non-Jews do, you that actually have memorized the Old Testament your whole life, bring the best of you out. And here's what I need to say to you. You have actually missed me. You've missed the Messiah. You've missed the God that you claim to know. And all you non-Jews, fine, in Corinth, you bring it out. Bring your best professors and your best historians and your best scientists and your best philosophers. You've missed your creator, and actually you've missed my love. You've missed my work for you. See, it doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're deeply religious or deeply secular or spiritual or philosophical or some mix of it all. God's work through the, through the cross has turned all human wisdom on its head in the ultimate sense. Paul then says it not holding back. You're like, Paul's not holding back? No, he keeps going. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not know God. With all our thinking, with all our pondering and all our religious actions and all our scientific discovery and all our historical research, we have not known God, found God, met God, encountered God personally, closely, relationally. Here's how Paul puts this conversation in Romans 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better off as Jews? Not at all. We've already made the charge the same. Jews and non-Jews are all alike under sin. Notice he doesn't say sins, but sin. 
sinful actions, when we break God's heart and God's law and hurt each other and hurt ourselves, comes from us because we are actually under the influence of a thing called sin. We're under the dynamic of sin, under the power of sin. We're controlled by sin. Another person said it this way. I quoted this years ago. If you could articulate sin was the color blue, then every aspect of us would have a shade of blue. Another said we are all infected with a radical corruption. We are morally ruined to our very roots. One person was interviewing a man who was a 35-year veteran funeral director. And he was being interviewed about what was it like to do it. And he gives us such a profound, insightful picture physically of what we all are spiritually. He says, I've had every age and every race and every nationality and every size of person and every religion on my morgue's table. And when you cut them open and you look inside, they all look the same. And let me assure you, it has never been pretty every single time. And Paul comes along and says, that's what we're like spiritually. It was one very famous Russian poet who penned these words. I don't know what the heart of a bad man looks like, but I sure know what the heart of a good man looks like, and it is terrifying. All of us have sinned. All of us have been, well, walked from God, condemned under the wrath of God. All of us have a heart full of sin, the very religious and unreligious, the kind, the unkind, the wicked, baby, children, teens, young adults, adults, those born, those dying, all under this dynamic. And before we can object, even on this Thanksgiving and raise our hand, Paul actually says in Romans 3.10, actually, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who's even seeking God. No one has right standing or relationship with God. No one understands. In other words, no one can bring the whole picture together. No one can figure out the puzzle. No one can see the whole picture. No one can understand or access God religiously or by human wisdom. God is actually beyond us. His depth, his attributes, his work. And then it's actually worse than we thought because no one is even seeking God. Now, some of you are like, excuse me. That's just crap. That's garbage. That's not true. I know all sorts of people who are spiritual and religious who are seeking God and are devout. And by the way, just go to Barnes and Noble and Estates or Chapters or Indigo up here and the shelves are full of books of self-help and spirituality. Yeah, yeah, but here's the question. Are they really, really seeking? The question you need to ask when people are seeking is why are you seeking? To really know God in his own terms or get something we want from him? To really know God or just feel better about our egos or ourselves, To actually know God or to be justified in our views about the world. See, most, if not all human beings, don't really seek out the true living God on his own terms. We actually want to make God who he is or what we want him to be. So we end up inventing idols or we invent this thing called religion where we will be at the center and we will do all these things and then we will be okay. Or actually we reject his existence because he ends up not actually suiting what we want. So let me go back to 1 Corinthians 1.21. For, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased. God in love. This isn't just a wrathful handshake. No, no. God who was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. God didn't leave us by ourselves in even all of our attractive thinking. He actually came for us anyway. But here's what Paul is driving home and what we need to get even on this Thanksgiving. The cross is not attractive. The cross is not compelling. The cross is not brilliant. The cross is actually not religiously insightful. It is not philosophically alluring or striking. But actually, the message of God which is foolish and stupid and silly and idiotic, unwise, imprudent and thoughtless and irrational to most, 
actually is reality. It is actually the longing of our hearts being fulfilled. It's the thing that not only cleans up sin, it is actually where love is demonstrated in the purest sense and actually where love is found every single time. And Paul says to this early church, you know what people say against our faith. Because by the way, all of you 20 years earlier used to say the same thing before you became Christians. And let me just remind you what people are saying in Corinth. Well, Jews, well, they demand signs and Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. That's knowledge. Paul says, don't forget who I am. He says, I am actually one of the best Jewish thinkers on earth right now when he was writing this. And I used to say these same things. Jews keep saying to Jesus, will you fit in my box and then I'll maybe think you're right. You keep doing a few more miracles and then maybe I'll believe. Then I'll maybe consider you're the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. But then they say in the same breath, no, no. No, no, we know better than you. Jesus, you're not the Messiah. You're not the king of the Jews. You're not Yahweh in flesh. Jesus, you cannot be the fulfillment of our faith. And let me tell you why. Because you Christians keep preaching that Jesus died on a cross. And to an Orthodox Jew hearing the Messiah died on a cross is like saying you can fry ice. It's impossible. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 21:23 it says anyone who's hung on a tree or a pole is cursed. And so they come along and they say, there is no way, Jesus, you are who you are or what you claim because there's no way that the Messiah could be cursed by God. Jesus, you're either a fraud or you're Satan or you're a really good guy who's a little messed up, but you're not the Messiah. You're not the king of the Jews. You're not the hope of Israel. There is no way that the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament happened through a guy who was killed by the Romans and died a common criminal death. The real Messiah is going to come back and kick the Romans out. And Paul looks at the Jewish community and says, don't you get it? Of course Jesus, the Messiah, was cursed. Because if he isn't cursed, then the curse remains on us and we're still lost. And then to all the non-Jews... In Paul's day in Corinth, they say, well, give us reason and knowledge, and then we'll see if God exists, and if he does, we'll see if we want him or know him. But the difficult thing for them is actually Jesus' crucifixion on a cross isn't new wisdom or a new moral code to explore. It's not a new philosophy. It just is. And then Paul says these words, but we preach the Messiah crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to non-Jews. No thinking person, no deeply religious person will naturally embrace, run towards, love, or understand the cross. Non-Jews want power and beauty and ideas and external strength and being self-made and educated. And Jews want Jesus to fit in their theological box. And all of us together, most of us think we can outwit God or outthink God or outsmart God. But as one person wrote, God is out of reach. There is no wising up to God. Wisdom is when you give up your own wisdom. Let me give you five archetypes of our city. When you think about a 44-year-old man, Muslim, married, three children, uh, entrepreneur, prays five times a day, genuinely devout, reads the Quran every day in Arabic, has gone to Hajj, he's gone to Mecca, a great citizen of our city, loves his wife, loves his kids, and is convinced because of what he does, Allah will welcome him into paradise. Right beside him is a young 28-year-old girl, MBA from Queens, doing really well in life, live-in boyfriend, used to party a lot in high school, doesn't party as much now because she's getting a little bit, she's adulting a little bit more. 
right? And as she's growing up, she's got a great job in one of our major banks in Toronto. She gives the United Way, and she's agnostic. She doesn't know if God's out there or not. Right beside her is an 85-year-old woman. She's from a European descent, immigrated over here, devout Roman Catholic, goes to church every single day, actually takes Eucharist, has done confession, and she gives her volunteer time to the church. And when you interview her, she will tell you, because she's been so devoted and so consistent and so faithful, Jesus would have to let her in, because look at what she's done. Right beside here, you've got a 32-year-old ad exec, very smart, and he's just married his boyfriend, and he believes in God, but doesn't understand really what God is, and so he's more drawn to new age thinking and self-empowerment and self-realization. And right beside him, you've got a stay-at-home mom in the suburbs, three kids trying to keep her marriage healthy and a little hot in the middle of craziness, and in the middle of that, right, soccer, baseball, ballet, and, and lunches, she runs in the fall for cancer runs. She believes there's a God. Actually, she would call herself a Christian. Her grandmother used to take her to church. She comes to Christmas Eve every once in a while when it fits the schedule. Husband wants nothing to do with faith. But when you really interview her, she would say that she's unsure of a lot of things and she ends up reading a lot more on spirituality than Christian faith. Right beside her, you've got a 67-year-old man, double PhD, science and philosophy, University of Toronto, divorcee. Militant atheist, great guy. Now, if I put all those people into a room, and after we got by the Canadian niceties, they'd all turn on each other. They'd disagree with each other theologically, spiritually, sexually. They'd, they'd all, they're all wrong. They'd all have this very intense conversation, politics life. And then the Christian gospel comes along and says this, you're all wrong, you're all in the same boat. You're all lost, even though you think you're right. Isn't it interesting that the, the most valued thing in our city is tolerance? Now, tolerance, by the way, is a good thing. I love living in our country that is tolerant. But tolerance doesn't mean what it used to. Tolerance used to mean, I will tolerate you. I will be kind to you while I disagree with you. Tolerance now means you must accept my position or you are hateful. And the Christian gospel comes along to Corinth and to Toronto and says, oh, by the way, just so you know, the most religious people in the conversation and the atheists and the agnostics and all in the same boat. But to those, verse 24, who God has called, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to those whom God gives faith to, to those that God gives life to, no matter your gender or ethnic background, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the love of God and the hope of God and the kindness of God. See, this, by the way, is where our unity is inside our church and with all other churches. And let me just say as a side note, don't break our unity. And notice that the power of God and the wisdom of God are the opposite of the power and wisdom of a self-made person or a deeply religious person. God's wisdom is found in him. God's wisdom is found in the cross, in his work, his love, and world's wisdom is always found when you are at the center of your decision. It says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God through the cross not only loves us and not only reveals who God is and not only comes for us and not only speaks to us, he reaches out for us. By the way, isn't that amazing? God loves us so much in our folly. He still comes for us. But here's the thing so many people forget. And God in his love outsmarts us. 
Why? Why does God do this? So to slap us? No, 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 no. He loves us so much. He needs to outsmart us because if he never nullified all of our wisdom down here, whether intellectual, secular, or religious, we'd still end up being lost. Now let me just stop and clarify something very important here today. This is not saying that our faith is stupid, that has no historical or scientific foundation. This is not saying you can't understand our faith and its lies and nonsense. In other words, let me say this. This is not a call to be anti-intellectual. So many Christians are not good thinkers. And we need to be better thinkers. Because our faith is rooted in actual history. If you doubt it, just read N.T. Wright's 790-page book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most fascinating and historically compelling books ever written in the last hundred years in any history department. Listen to John Lennox from Cambridge, mathematician and physicist, talk about how science is not in contradiction. This is not a call to be anti-intellectual. We need more Christians to be more intellectually engaging. But here's what Paul is saying. Even in all of our historical proving or scientific affirming, at the end, that never gets you over the finish line. It takes God. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. By human standards, not many of you were influential. Not many of you were from noble birth. He says to that original church, there's not a lot of really famous, powerful people in the church, but I already told you, God's starting point isn't what your city's starting point is. God has decided to call you because he loves you. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world to despise and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So no one may be boast before him. Salvation's from God. It might look foolish or shameful or stupid, but God loves taking weak things and despise things. And let me just say something this morning. If you're a person here today and you're not profoundly beautiful, or incredibly smart, or you have a really screwed up history, let me just say, God loves taking things that are shameful, or broken, or on the back burner, or on the margins, and actually showing you that that doesn't matter. That doesn't define you. His love for you will define you if you embrace Jesus. And their social standing, or religious duty, or good looks didn't matter. And why does he say this? Because no one gets to boast in the end except God. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you get saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works. No one gets to brag. Verse 30, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. Therefore, it is written, let anyone boast, boast in God. By the way, look at that. Jesus is our righteousness. We have right standing Jesus is our holiness. We've been made clean. We're saints. Jesus is our redemption. He walked in and took us out of the slavery of sin, the slavery to death, the slavery actually to our own issues, and the slavery to the devil. Now, as we're learning to pioneer and pilgrim, to live an authentic Christian life, or seeking to see if it is true, what do we learn? Well, here's the first thing. As it's already been set, and by the way, when we set this out, we didn't think this was going to land on Thanksgiving, but it did. Number one, we just need to have a huge thank you to God. Would anyone want to say amen to that this morning? That you've been called and that you've believed. If actually our condition is as bad as the Bible says, 
then what Paul has actually declared over us, if you're a follower of Jesus, is unbelievable through the cross of Christ. Remember what Paul said, and we learned last week, we together already, past tense, are saints. We together are now called to work out our holiness on the ground. We're bound to each other by Jesus. Each one of us has the Holy Spirit living in us. We together, all together, have the spiritual gifts. We together will be kept firm to the end. We together will be blameless. We together have experienced the faithfulness of God. We together have been called by God. We together have fellowship with Jesus. We together have been baptized into Jesus. And when you realize that you are set free from trying to find God through your own thinking, and you are set free from the burden of trying to please God and acting and living a perfect life, that's when you start saying, I boast in God and boast in the cross because it's such a gift and my burdens are gone. So when we come at this site and the next site in the next few minutes to take communion, This is when we need to get gratitude on and say, I boast in the Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's the second thing. Expectations are always important. It's really interesting how so many of you who are Christians here up in Port Perry listening online, you've tried so hard to share the good news of Jesus with family or friends. And so much of the time when it doesn't go right, even though you tried doing it well, you end up saying this to yourself, what did I do what? Wrong. I I just want to set your expectations right this morning. Paul, writing to a group of Christians in a profoundly diverse, amazing urban environment, said there is always three reactions to the good news of Jesus. Many people are going to tell you it's stupid, it's idiotic, and they'll never give you a second chance. No matter how much intellectual work you do, Others are going to say it's a stumbling block. What does that mean? It's too difficult. It costs too much. I'd have to give up too much to actually follow this and meet him. And to others, it means salvation. Don't be shocked when you get one of these three reactions. Nothing is new under the sun. Here's the last thing I'd like to say this morning, and it's this. As I've been preaching this morning... There are people here today, as I've literally been speaking, you know you're being called. Like, you at this moment go, oh, no, 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 he's talking to me. I'm not. My boss is, by the way. So here's what I want to say to you this morning on this Thanksgiving. Humble yourself. In this great city that we live in, with all of what we've got, humble yourself. You're not wiser than wisdom, and you're not stronger than strength. You can't remove God out of your own story. You're not strong enough. And you can't remove God out of the world's story. And by the way, God can't be accessed by intellect or strength or beauty or religious duty. He's always met when you just say yes to a gift. It's by faith. What does faith mean? It doesn't mean blind trust, blind jumping. It means informed trust. You know, just before Jesus died on the cross, he said these really profound words. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to get to God except through me. After Jesus physically rose from the dead, Peter, in one of the first three Christian sermons ever preached, uttered these words in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. By the cross, Jesus is the only one that demonstrates who God really is, and God is love. Jesus is the only one who's dealt with your sin because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one that has overcome death because actually he's the only one who went to the other side for three days and literally came back and told us what's on the other side. He's the only one that has the power, the ability, the holiness, and love to deal with our rescue. 
He's the only one that's overcome the enemies of our own selfish inclinations and conquered death and conquered sin and can give you a fresh start and has the ability to make you clean. And if that's not strong enough and more beautiful enough and alluring enough, don't forget he comes and he says, I don't want you to work for it at all. The good news is this, that God didn't leave us in our brokenness. God didn't walk away even though we walked away from him. The good news of Christianity is that through the cross of Christ, Jesus died a death. We deserve, physically rose back from the dead and rescues us. And he comes and says, this is just a gift. I'd love you to have it. We are rescued by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. It is by grace alone, through trust alone, through faith alone, through the person and work of Jesus alone, achieved by the cross alone. So if that's you this morning and you're the person, no matter what your background is, here's what Paul wrote to Christians in Rome, the ultra epicenter of wealth and power and intellect and authority and aristocracy. He said these words, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And so why don't we just take a moment all across this place on this Thanksgiving weekend, all of you up in Port Perry High School, all of you watching and listening online on planes and airplanes and in cottages, connect groups. Let's just do a few things together. Number one, uh, we who are Christians want to pray a a few things back to you. Number one, Lord Jesus... Help us not to be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Help us to be okay that it looks like foolishness and stumbling blocks because actually it is salvation. Uh, Second of all, Lord, thank you that you came and rescued us. Can everyone just take a moment and say thank you? Uh, Third of all, Lord, we pray for our friends and family actually that you'd have mercy and reveal to them the good news and move them from foolish or stumbling block to saved. And actually, right now, as I'm praying, I know the Holy Spirit's bringing actually people's faces to your minds. Just pray that right now, that actually to move from foolishness or stumbling block to salvation. And here's the last thing. For the one or two people that has not yet crossed the line of faith, and this is your day, and God has spoken to you, it doesn't matter your age or stage or background. Here's what you need to do. You say, Lord Jesus Christ, I now embrace the work of the cross of Jesus, your cross. I used to think it was too much or stupid, but I'm turning to you now. I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you actually raised from the dead. And I'm asking you to forgive my sins and to save me from my stuff, my sin. Now give me new life that I don't even fully understand, but I confess that you're my Savior and my Lord, and I say yes to the work of the cross of Christ. I do this for the first time in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. If you prayed that, it's very important you share that with the person you came or tell us so we can help you journey. But would you stand all across this place now? And would you stand up in Port Perry as we prepare to take communion together? It's an obvious response to take communion together, right? 
And if you're a Christian, you know that you're welcome to take communion because it is the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it says in the scriptures that if you're a follower of Christ and you're walking with him, you take this joyfully. It says in the scriptures, if you're not a Christian yet, you don't take this because actually, though it's just bread and juice, it represents something in the someone you've not said yes to. But we always say, this is a great time to say yes to him. Do it. Say yes. The scripture also says if you are a Christian and you know the saving beauty work, of, the beautiful work of Christ, but you're on the run and you refuse to actually submit to him in this period, don't take it until you're ready to come home. But when we take this together, as this is passed together, as we sing and as we take this, Just say thank you to Jesus for moving you beyond the stumbling block and the foolish idea to find life. On this Thanksgiving day, be thankful. And if you can't be thankful, if some of you can't be thankful because you just don't have it in you, then ask the Holy Spirit who is in you to produce a gratitude in you you don't have right now. So we just pray, Lord, over these elements, the symbols of your death and resurrection, the symbol of your sacrifice, the symbol of the cross. And we thank you that you died for us, that you're alive, that you forgive our sin. Now nourish us, meet us uh, as this is passed to us. Help us to be thankful. Bless these elements and bless this moment of encounter, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.